This is Cecil Alexander, and welcome to Coffee Talk. Hello, and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian, and today we've got another episode of Coffee Talk for you. This week, we're joined by guitar professor Cecil Alexander. Professor Alexander is one of our newest faculty members here in the Berkeley Guitar Department. He graduated Berkeley as a jazz composition major and later received a master's in jazz performance from William Patterson University. He's since developed an exciting career as a renowned jazz guitarist, became a finalist in the Herbie Hancock Prize, and also is a winner of the Lee Rittenauer Six String Theory Competition. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with Cecil Alexander. Hi, everyone. I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the guitar department at Berkeley College of Music. Welcome to another Coffee Talk. Uh, as usual, we're joined by Cheryl Bailey, our assistant chair. Hey, Cheryl. Coffee cheers. Coffee cheers. And Ian Steed, our senior coordinator. Hey, all. And today our guest is uh, one of our newest guitar professors and alum of the guitar department, Professor Cecil Alexander. Hey, Cecil. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Hey. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, Cecil, are you drinking coffee today? I am drinking coffee, yes. This is uh, just a regular ground filter coffee. Any kind of particular roast or anything that you go for? Uh, I prefer dark roast, usually. Um, this particular brand is called Community Coffee, um, and it was my birthday recently, and my mom always sends me community coffee for my birthday. <laughs> Where are you from? Is, or is it from a specific place? It's from, uh, I think, New Orleans. Uh, my mom is from, like, down in that that area, um, but I'm from Michigan originally. Oh, cool. Mm. Cool. Yeah, community coffee is, like, a big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's really cool. Um, when did you start becoming a coffee drinker? Uh, maybe a little bit too early. I think I was uh, nine when my parents started letting me drink coffee. Wow. Yeah. So All that right. probably uh, stunted my growth a little bit or something. <laughs> Do you feel like it has contributed to your overall velocity on our instrument? Not really, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like at the beginning of the day when I start drinking coffee, I get really like pumped up and I feel like, you know, practicing something really specific. And then I just get super scatterbrained after like the second or third cup, you know. Well, maybe that's it. Maybe it's the, it's probably more about the focus of your practicing mm. rather than the caffeine in your system, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Um, okay. So the next thing we usually go to our first days at Berkeley. And so, um, I think because you're, a, I mean, you were a student here, um, at the college and then you went away for a short time and now you're back as a relatively young member of the faculty. So I think it'd be really fun um, for people to hear about what you remember about your, one of your first days when you were a student and then, um, you know, what your impressions were coming back as a teacher. Sure. Yeah. I mean, when I was a student at Berkeley, um, I just remember being like so overwhelmed the first week by just like, how many amazing musicians I was surrounded by, you know, cause I come from a small town originally and I was like really the only person that I knew that was taking music seriously. And then to come to Berkeley where everybody's that person in their hometown, you know? Um, so I was just like soaking it up really like trying to play with everybody, um, trying to play as many jam sessions as I possibly could and meet a lot of people. And, you know, um, and now as a professor, like the first day, it kind of just felt like settled, like, <laughs> like I it felt like I was uh, back home or something like that, you know, um, and just meeting everybody the first week, it was, um, I felt like I could relate to where they were coming from quite a bit, you know, mm -hmm. like those first week jitters and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> what did it feel like to be teaching in the same spaces 
where you were a student. Did you have any moments like that where you kind of had a moment of flashback? Um, a little bit. Yeah, like maybe when a teacher chewed me out for not working on <laughs> an assignment or something like that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It just kind of felt like uh, I was back at Berkeley as a student, but I didn't have any homework a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. Um, I think that everybody in this hang today is, is a, has that common experience of being a, a relatively small town kid with the guitar. Yeah. Um, I know that we've all talked about it at different times and um, I'm wondering what did that, how did that affect the way that you practice? Did you feel like kind of having to motivate yourself helped you? Like how, how did that affect you? Like kind of being on your own when you were young with the instrument? Yeah, I think early on, like when I started playing when I was uh, maybe seven or eight years old, it was hard to um, stay focused just because I didn't like have anyone to, you know, look up to or see like, you know, if you keep practicing, this is the point that you will get to, you know. Um, and also like YouTube wasn't really big, so I couldn't like, you know, just go on YouTube and look up like Jimi Hendrix videos or BB King videos or something like that. So I actually ended up, um, I took lessons for maybe two years and stopped playing guitar altogether for um, another two years and picked it up again when I was 12 or 13. Um, and then like, you know, information was a lot more uh, easily accessible and I could like go on YouTube and look up you know, this is how you play uh, Little Wing by Jimi Hendrix and, you know, somebody like showing you exactly where to put your fingers and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a big, that played a big part in um, just like staying motivated and like kind of keeping on the path, I guess. Um, and then it wasn't really until I got to high school and I did the five week program at Berkeley that, you know, that was kind of like a, a little taste of like, oh, this is what's out there. You know, these are like, kids that are the same age as you and they're like killing it, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, so that was kind of motivation. Um, like I said, just to stay focused and keep going, I guess. Yeah. I want to hand this to Cheryl in a second too, but I'm wondering like for you, when you started to make that transition from learning tunes and sort of, you know, watching instructional things to the, like, this is where you put your fingers to really learning in the fretboard in a deeper way. Mm -hmm. So that allowed you to create your own, your own materials and, and be able to improvise and, and kind of take hand of things. How did that transition feel to you? How did, do you remember making that transition? Because I think a lot of people are in that moment where they're really enjoying playing, but mm. then that transition to knowing the fretboard more deeply is, is a, feels really daunting. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that first happened, um, like right before I went to five week, actually, like I just kind of had this impression that that was something that I had to get together before coming to Berkeley, even for a summer program, you know? So I spent like maybe a month leading up to five week, like learning modes and like really making sure that I had the names of the notes on the fretboard internalized and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I definitely remember like the exact, the exact moment. <laughs> I was like, okay, I got to get this together. <laughs> um, and I guess the thing that goes hand in hand with that, like when people hear you and when I watch you play and, and hear you play, I'm really moved by just the way you move on the instrument and the mm -hmm. way it sounds. And as a classical musician, I relate to that because I've always felt that like if something looks really fluid, it's going to sound really fluid. Mm. And from a technical standpoint, I love to watch your hands move. I love to watch you breathe when you play because mm. you're so relaxed. And if you haven't seen Cecil play, you can go to our YouTube um, channel and you can watch him play. And just the way you move on the instrument is fluid and relaxed and you're definitely breathing. And you can hear that breathing in your phrasing. Mm. No matter how fast you're going, you could play these really open sounding, beautiful melodies with a lot of space. You could play something really rhythmic where, again, you're leaving space. And then you could just play, you know, the fastest run maybe any, any guitar has ever seen. And then it, it but it just lands like it like uh, like the classical teachers I had would say it's like landing a plane, you know, like you're, you're coming in for landing. And 
and you seem like you're having a good time when you're doing it and you seem loose, you know, like all the things I watch for in someone's hands and shoulders and face, like to learn from myself and to, and to watch for in others, um, you have that. And, and I'm wondering, like that clearly comes from a lot of very intentional practice. Mm-hmm. And so could you talk a little bit about how you developed your process to practice your technique and your tone production? Because that's the other element of it, right? Is that you have this beautiful control over your tone where you can change the shape of your notes and you can make mm-hmm. them short or long or fat or thin or bright or warm. Like, how do you go about practicing that? I think, um, you know, a big like light bulb moment, so to speak, was when um, I think I was taking lessons with uh, Tronzo, actually, and he was just really focused on um, focusing on application, you know, like kind of practicing the way that you want to perform or like practicing the way that you want to sound. Um, and before before that, I think I was like, you know, doing a lot of like scalar practice and stuff like that, which definitely helped with dexterity. But he was like, you know, focus on phrases, like you should be practicing phrases, because I was practicing all that stuff and wondering, like, you know, why when I improvised, it didn't sound like bebop, or it didn't sound like what I heard on the recordings, you know. Um, So I've spent a lot of time just kind of working on vocabulary, working on um, playing along to recordings. That was a big thing, like not even just transcribing, but like, you know, turning on a Kenny Burrell record or a West Montgomery record or something like that and trying to match the way that they phrase while playing like my own phrases, you know, um, and trying to match the way that they pick and their timbre and touch and everything like that. Um, so I, I guess it's, it's never really been something that I've, you know, really like narrowly focused on. Like I've never really said like I'm going to focus on my my tone today or something like that. But I think just through listening and kind of absorbing through osmosis in a way. <laughs> I think that's really important. I want to highlight something that you said about making connections. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I want to say to people that um, you, the professor that you mentioned is David Tronzo, who's also done some interviews on Coffee Talk that you can go back and cross-reference and, and see some lineage here. Like now you're the colleague of your teachers, so that's pretty cool. Um, but I think that this thing that you said about you know practicing the scales, because everyone has to practice scales and modes at Berkeley when you come as a student, and hopefully even no matter where you are, you're doing that. But... It, it is a leap maybe that you don't expect that that is obviously you're practicing those things because those are the melodic material of the lines that you want to play and the phrases you want to play and the tunes that you're working on and, and in what you're improvising. And so I like that you're saying like that you had to make a conscious, intentional decision to connect those things in your practice so that when you're playing your scales, you're not just going for the athletic part of it. You're going right. through the sonic quality of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, that, and, that was definitely a big, big connection mm-hmm. because I think for so long I just focused on like, you know, how can I get these scales to the point mm-hmm. where um, I don't have to think about it. Like my fingers are just kind of running on autopilot a little bit. And then when I would go to improvise, it was like, okay, that's that's there. But like, <laughs> you know, how do I, like I said, how do I make it sound like what, what's on the records? And, you know, that's just the, the source material, you know, you have to get creative with it from there. Yeah. And I like that idea too, that listening to different players and, and thinking in your, in your mind, like what makes them sound like that? And what's the relationship of what I have to do with my hands to create the sound that I'm hearing mm-hmm. for myself. I think that's, you know, sometimes these things turn into exercises and they get a little lost in terms of like, well, transcribing isn't just to copy someone. Right. It's to listen to the sound that they're making. And, and if you want to have that sound for yourself, what do you have to do to get it? Mm-hmm. And scales um, are not just about dexterity. Like I had friends that used to, you know, when they missed that connection, would just like flip on a movie or like the sports channel, like the golf channel and just run up and down. And then later right. the same thing happens, no matter your style, you know, you're not making a connection. Mm-hmm. Um, Cheryl, I'm wondering what's on your mind because I think of your playing when I think of the qualities I described and, and Cecil's playing too. And, um, 
And I know that you've made a lot of those connections for yourself. And uh, I'm wondering what's on your mind now. Well, yeah, I mean, what Cecil's saying there and, and what you're saying there is really true. I mean, you can only play what you practice. So, you know, you have a student come in and say, yeah, when I improvise, it just sounds like I'm playing scales. I'm like, I bet you practice scales all day. <laughs> so you're, it's very successful. <laughs> um, but I think that's great. I'm, I'm just curious, um, Cecil, you know, what kind of stuff have you developed sort of your own approaches to that or 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 there were there things you know uh, maybe something tronzo turned you on to or something you learned here at berkeley to develop those kinds of melodic shapes i always call it to hannon as a verb you know there's the actual hannon but like to hannon to kind of create those melodic shapes because that's that's really what is going to be what you draw on as an improviser so i'm curious i'm just i want yeah what are you practicing Sure. Um, well, I think a big thing was uh, transcribing, um, but transcribing um, in a very specific way. Uh, when I started my master's at uh, William Patterson in New Jersey, um, I had this ear training class where uh, the teacher was like really stressing uh, singing everything. And that was something that I had never really thought about. Like I had, you know, seen videos of like Kurt Rosenwinkel and he sings while he plays or like Keith Jarrett or Oscar Peterson or somebody like that. But I just thought that I didn't really think that it had any, any benefit. You know, I didn't really know or understand that that allows you to play more melodically that allows you to follow your ear. Um, so after that class, um, that just kind of became the way that I transcribed. Like I would, you know, listen to a solo, like, 10,000 times, um, be able to sing most of it. You know, sometimes I can't get like something because it's too fast or the contour is too weird or something like that, but just trying to like get the notes inside of my ear, I guess, um, and vocalize it some way I think is really important. Um, and then I would learn it on my instrument, uh, preferably from the way that I sing it, you know, um, because I felt like that was like really, just connecting my ear to my instrument, you know, so it could get to the point where if I'm playing in a group setting um, and somebody plays like some fill, I can like use that as melodic material. Or if like the bass player plays some interesting thing in their walking line, I can use that as melodic material, you know. Um, and then after that class, like that just kept getting stressed, like throughout my master's, like different teachers would like I'd bring in um, some lines that I was practicing and the teacher would say, well, can you sing it? And I'd be like, no. <laughs> and he was like, well, don't play it. Then. <laughs> um, so I think that that's like the bulk of what I practice is just trying to connect everything to my ear. So if it's like two, five, one licks that I'm working out over a specific tune, and I'll make sure I can sing it. Or if it's, um, you know, even just learning a new tune, I'll try to sing the bass notes. Um, I'll try to sing like arpeggios through the changes and all that kind of stuff. Because um, that kind of, I feel like in itself gets me uh, past the point of thinking when I'm improvising and just reacting, you know. Cecil, I think you're in a unique position in some ways because you graduated fairly recently. And there's a lot of people, especially now, kind of coming to the end of their time at Berkeley, and they're starting to think about what comes next. And I'm wondering, like, if you look back, um, I know you went and did your master's, and you're talking about what you're learning there. What were some of the things that you did professionally while you were in your master's at, to, like, just to start building, like, the playing part of, of your career, or the teaching part of your career? Because it feels like you, you did both of those things pretty consistently after Berkeley? Yeah, I, mean, I taught a lot. Um, like right after finishing Berkeley, um, my wife and I moved to Arizona and we were both like teaching at music studios and just trying to get that kind of experience. Um, once I moved to Jersey for my master's, I started doing like Zoom lessons and things like that because I was trying to like build a social media um presence, I guess. So I was posting a lot on Instagram and Facebook and getting students that way. Um, and I was doing a lot of recording work that was also from social media, you know, um, 
and a lot of competitions as well. I always felt like that was um, just a good way to like meet like-minded guitarists and kind of like um, help get a foot in the door in a way, you know. Um, so I did those as far back as um, 2017. I think that was the first one I did, which was the year after I, I graduated. I want you and Cheryl to both talk about competitions for a minute because there's so much, you know, people have mixed feelings about competitions um, in the classical world and in the jazz world. And I think that both of you are such expressive musicians and you have your own voice on the instrument, which is one of the arguments against competitions, right? That they kind of put you into more of an athletic approach to the instrument. Um, but you both did them and you both very famously were finalists in the monk competition which is now the hancock competition and um and there aren't very many of you in that club and so um i would love for each of you to talk about you know your approach like like cecil maybe build on what you're talking about like why you thought they were important and what you got out of them and um and you know what advice you might give to people who are interested in that pathway. So Cecil, you can decide if you want to go first or if you want to throw it to Cheryl for a minute. It's up to you. Cheryl, do you want to go first? Yeah, I win. <laughs> oh, okay. Competition over. Okay. <laughs> Clearly Cecil has embraced collegiality here, you know, <laughs> but go, go ahead, Cheryl. Oh, no, I mean, um, well, I mean, I did that, the monk competition it was the first time they had guitar and they split it with bass, which was a drag because that, that meant they split the money. I would have liked to have the big pot of money, but anyway, that was a long time ago. Um, you know what I learned about it actually is that, um, you know, uh, this can be a big part. The competition thing is strange. And also I just feel like Thelonious Monk wouldn't have won the Thelonious Monk competition. <laughs> why why do you say that why do you well, say that well because i guess there is that element of displaying your technique and the athletic um aspect of things um it's not uh that wasn't really what monk was about do, do you feel like that is because of some of the value systems of the judging of the competition or do you think it's just the entire culture that surrounds it i think it's the entire culture around it and you know people want to show up and you know get a bucket of popcorn and you know it's like watching the <laughs> the red Sox or the Steelers or whatever you're into you know that element I think it's more for the the hype of it and the audience likes to see it mm -hmm. um but I mean what I did learn about it is that um you know, you, we could also, you could also apply this stuff to, if you have to do grants, um, really dot your I's and cross your T's with what the requirements are mm -hmm. of what you're being asked. Because um, it was so specific with the monk thing. There were so many really great guitarists and uh, they have to set the, the parameters really tight so they can eliminate people because there's, you know, there's so many great guitars. How are we going to uh, make that call? So, you know, they had really strict rules. And when I did it, you know, when you had nine, I think it was 11 minutes. Like, really, you have 11 minutes. You have to play a ballad, a medium tune, and an up-tempo tune in 11 minutes. So then I said, wow, that means it's got to be 1059. You know what I mean? And and so I think there were some other players. So I that was my thing is I followed the rules exactly how they wanted it because there were some other players that I felt were a lot better. I know were a lot better than me, but they didn't follow the rules. So that makes it easy to, for them to eliminate them because everybody is a really high level player and they could be, and they only have a short amount of time to make this decision. So if they have ways to discard you, they will. So that was the first thing. It's like, so that would be true if you're writing a grant or any of those things. Really do what they're asking. They say they want it in the key of A flat and it's got to be 
14 measures, that's what you're going to do. Because if you do less or more, they eliminate you. So that was the one thing is like really pay attention to that. Um, now, and I and I have to say, I mean, I was really prepared for the second round, you know, um, and then when I made it into the final, I was so shocked. I wasn't really prepared for it. And, and so the guy that came in first, he was prepared for it in that way. Like he came with arrangements and, and I was sort of just so in shock because really it was the next day. Like they said, you made it in the final and tomorrow is the thing. I was like, all I wanted, all I did was I want to play something I'm comfortable with because I was so freaked out. So I think looking back on it, if I had really seen myself going, advancing all the way to the end, like the guy who came in first, he was prepared and he, he put on a great show. He had these great arrangements and, you know, everything was there. And I was just like, if I can walk off that stage and, <laughs> you know, feel happy that I won. So I guess I won in that way, but, <laughs> but the guy who came prepared to really go come in first place, that's why. So that, that's what I learned about it. I think that's great advice for anyone who's doing anything that feels competitive is that idea of like, see yourself successful at the end. And then you're reverse engineering what you need personally to feel comfortable in that situation to give yourself every, like the best possible situation. That's, that's really valuable. I mean, you know, we could take that advice and send it to every student who's looking at final exams today or anything. Um, I think that's, that's really good advice. Um, well, that is, I mean, I think that's powerful. That whole visualization thing is very yeah. powerful. And I mean, it's the same because I mean, it also too, if you're comparing this to a, an athletic event, mm -hmm. those really great Olympic athletes, they spend a lot of time just in here in their head, seeing it as much as they actually are on the field practicing it. I mean, I think it's true. And a lot of times in these conversations and then, you know, when we're hanging out, we talk about the fact that most of the problems that come to us in these situations are non-musical problems. They're not musical problems. They have nothing to do with, um, with your hands or your musicianship. They have to do with the way you think about yourself and the way that you are approaching it personally. And, and often those things are the hardest to work on because you really have to sit with yourself a little bit and, and say like, how can I think of myself as a person who could be there at the end? You know, so that's like, obviously you learned that from. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so now Cecil. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Cecil, you're up. Like, what do you, what did you learn from that experience? What are you going to pass on? Well, I have to echo what uh, Cheryl mentioned about um, the second day of the competition, like I was just kind of so in shock that I just didn't even give any thought to the final round. Like I put so much like thought and preparation work into, um, the semifinals. And I like perfectly imagined like, okay, this is how this tune is going to transition to this tune. And it was just like very, you know, neatly arranged. Um, but then they announced me as one of the finalists and I was like, Oh, there's a final round. <laughs> um, and I was like scrambling to get stuff together. And like Cheryl said, I was just trying to think of stuff that I thought I could, you know, kind of stretch on like stuff that I had played like a thousand times and felt like I knew like the back of my hand. Um, and the guy that, that one did end up having a lot of preparation. You could tell that he had thought about it as if, you know, okay, this is what I'm going to do for the semifinals, but this is what I'm going to do for the final round. It was, you know, it was amazing. Um, but I think leading up to the um, competition, like just preparing for that um, was really like a kind of a wake up call for me. Um, because once I was announced as one of the semifinalists a month before the competition took place, um, I was like, like looking at videos of all the other semifinalists and saying like, okay, this guy can do this thing and they can do this thing. And like trying to like, like even transcribe some of their licks to see what was going on harmonically or melodically and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then the way that I was preparing, um, like the tunes that I was going to play, I said, okay, you know, this guy's probably going to play something like this and they'll probably play and like, you know, just very, very competitive. And, um, just like a couple weeks before the competition, I was like, okay, 
let me just, you know, focus on being the best version of myself because that's all I can do ultimately, you know? Um, so I think that that's, that's kind of the advice that I would give anybody trying to, you know, go into the competition circuit, you know, even though it is a competition, there's like definitely a athletic quality to it. Just kind of focus on being like a better version of yourself as a player than you were yesterday or the day before or whatever, you know? Well, that's interesting, Cecil, because I mean, I did mine was way before the internet. We couldn't see, and we didn't know who the other people were actually. Um, so that would have unnerved me, I think. I think that would have, uh, you're much stronger than me. <laughs> Cause I, I, that would have unnerved me to see who those other players were. But I, I do actually, when, when you said that about preparing, that really changed the way that I prepare music. Because in, I, I don't know for you, but for us, they said you could pick, you had to pick a composer and do three of their tunes. So I picked Monk and the couple tunes I picked, I really studied them. I made a playlist of as many versions of Monk playing them and as many versions of other people playing them. And I just listened to it around the clock to really just internalize the music. And it really changed the way, and in doing that, you know, actually that tune Evidence was one of the tunes I chose. And I learned so much studying that to really play that fluently without thinking. It's so tricky, right? But it really, preparing for that, I would say changed the way that I learn repertoire in that way of really doing a deep dive with finding, yeah, the actual composer, if, you know, if it's a jazz tune and then trying to learn as many alternate changes or arrangements of a tune that I could to really feel like I know that tune. So I, I think that's, I think that is the most interesting thing. The takeaway from doing those competitions is it hones your, your skills and level of how you learn and prepare. Yeah, that, that definitely resonates with me. Um, they didn't, you know, go as far as to give us like one specific composer. Um, I did an original, um, I remember you and then shadow of your smile for uh, the semifinal round. Um, and I just, you know, listened to as many different versions of those two standards as I possibly could. And like, tried to see what cool things I could do arrangement wise, like, um, you know, maybe some versions that I could hint at or take some, some elements from or something like that. And even with the original that I did, it was like a, a blues with um, some alternate changes for the turnaround. And I was like really getting into tunes, like blueses with with alternate changes and trying to see what this person did here and what this person did and all that kind of stuff. You know, a lot of people who I talk with who got really into classical competitions say echo similar things that the best part about doing competition is to really hone the way you learn and and how deep you go and having that pressure situation coming up is really helpful in organizing all that and i'm wondering coming out of that i think there are some people who i've have worked with in the past have had a hard time like exiting in terms of really doing kind of what you were talking about cecil like trying to be the best version of yourself but maybe not like kind of coming back to yourself after you're so focused on repertoire. And maybe it's a little different in jazz because there's so much of you in the improvisational aspects of things. But how did you um, transition sort of out of that period of your life into what you do now? Do you feel like there was a, there was a process there or do you feel like it was just sort of a natural progression? I kind of feel like it was sort of a natural progression um, because like I mentioned, you know, I did a lot of comparing myself to other players and like seeing where, where they were coming from, like improvisationally, even just like technically, like what other people could do that I, I couldn't do basically. Um, and I think that that last competition that I did, the Hancock one was like, like I said, it was a big wake up call and coming out of that, that just kind of solidified like what I wanted to do as a, as a musician and as an artist, you know, like what direction I wanted to head into and like what things really resonated with me. Um, and I just kind of put 
more emphasis on just being honest in my expression rather than like, you know, saying, oh, I can't do this thing that so-and-so can do and all that, you know. What about for you, Cheryl? Um, I don't know, you know, I, I, I just think that whole process and all those aspects that we're talking about were really powerful for me. Um, just the process, you know, and deepening that. Um, I mean, I didn't, yeah, like I said, I'm re actually really glad I did it at a time when I couldn't see what the competition <laughs> was doing. I don't know if I could have taken that kind of pressure. So, you know, so that's cool. But so now I know, so now I know Cecil. <laughs> Um, the other question I have for you kind of about that kind of professional development stuff is a lot of people are, um, they'll come to us and they'll say, um, especially surrounding you coming to Berkeley as a faculty member is that, um, your youth, right. Impresses them like, oh my gosh, you know, he's so young. And, um, and the, to be honest with you, we didn't think about it that way. Right. And, uh, and so, um. There are a couple things I wanted to mention about that, and then I wanted to get your impression about, like, you know, the process of coming here as a faculty member and maybe going to other places, too, where you, maybe your first college teaching jobs. Um, for us, um, we were in a situation where we really needed to hire some faculty, and we had been hearing about you from other teachers that you, on our faculty, that you play with. And, um, and also in the ether were all of your teachers here who really remembered you and um they would say to us things like hey listen i know that this might be on the horizon but there's this guy and i have to say like he was always really responsible and he was really cool and he came to all my office hours and he asked great questions and he was a killer player but he was always really nice to the younger students and i just feel like you should keep your eye out for this person and it was all things that you may have done in a lab or an ensemble or a classroom class that you probably didn't even know you're focused on whatever it is that you were doing um, so it didn't feel like you hadn't been gone for a long time in fact I was surprised to put it together that we were here at the same time when you were a student that it was in my time of being here at Berkeley which is the last sort of eight and a half years and so um, I think that that's important for people to know that sometimes you're kind of auditioning for things in your life and you don't really know because in a way what's happening is um, people are like, you know, we need this thing to get done, whether it's a part that they need played or a, a, a role that you need played. And, and you're like, who can we count on? Like who would be adaptable, who would be able to handle this and who would be a great, a great fit. And, um, and so, uh, it may have felt like to you it, things came out of the blue when we called you, but the truth is, is we had been um, sort of hoping that there might be a a way to connect with you on a, on this kind of level, and then we just kind of lucked out. The timing worked out for all of us, right? And and that's the other thing is that sometimes we don't even know when the timing is going to work out. We can bring someone in, so. Um, could you talk about that a little bit, like what your impressions were with that? Because I, I think a lot of your students are probably like, you know, hey, man, like, how do I do the things that you're doing professionally, you know? Yeah, I think um, it definitely felt like it came out of out of the blue when I uh, when I got the email from you. <laughs> um, but I think just um, what I try to, I guess, tell all my students is just to really take everything seriously because, you know, and this is going to sound kind of weird and big brothery, but you never know who's watching, <laughs> you know, and you, know, <laughs> and you never know, like, you know, a good impression that you make on somebody might come around in, in five years to, um, you know, really put together some important stuff in your career, you know, um, like I, I never really gave any thought to, um, how interacting with a specific professor would like eventually lead to a job at Berkeley or anything like that. I was just trying to like be respectful and, and professional and um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe I think there's an aspect there too, that, 
you know, it, it kind of came out in this last thing that you're talking, when you're talking about the way you prepared for this competition and you were like, oh, let's see what the other people are doing. And, and that takes a lot of courage, I think is what I'm trying to say. And sometimes like doing these things that seem like not a big deal, like going to someone's office hours and being open to things that are, are challenging for you. I think that sometimes comes across in a way that as courageous as someone who's able to sort of say, um, you know, I'm not really sure I understood what was going on, or I want to push myself in a different direction or a new direction, or I want to learn more about this. And it's not an easy thing. Um, everybody thinks, oh yeah, there's office hours and you get to spend time with all these great musicians. But when you go there, you're really putting yourself out there, you know, to, to go to someone's time and say, yeah, I'd like to play a tune with you. It's like, wow, you're putting yourself on the line in, in a way that is impressive in a way, but you have to kind of find enough curiosity maybe to outrun your fear in those moments. But it feels like from what, um, people have remembered of your time here, um, that you were, you were able to do that. And, how were you able to do that when you're in the middle of all of this information kind of coming down on you? Yeah, I think um, an important word that you mentioned is uh, just being curious, you know, and being um, just really curious about what people's approach is to a specific thing, like whether it's the way that they work out a tune or something that they do technically. Um, and in a way, it kind of uh, feeds itself into like you just being centered on your growth and just kind of staying in your lane in a way, you know? Um, so yeah, I think, I think that was a big thing, uh, when I was a student at Berkeley was just like the amount of information that was coming at me frequently, but I just tried to kind of, um, I don't know, see how it could apply to like my playing and my composition and, the things that I wanted to do in my career, I guess, rather than like saying, Oh, I have to take all of these things and, you know, morph them into my approach. I would just kind of like pick and choose in a way, you know, and see like what resonated with me the most, I guess. Ian, um, there's a question that you always ask and, and I feel like it's a good time or, or to ask other things that might be on your mind. You know? Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, definitely. So this is a question that we ask everybody on this podcast, which is, um, what's something that students should be thinking about that they might not be thinking about. And maybe you kind of already answered that with everybody's watching, but like, what's maybe a question that they should maybe ask that they might not even think to ask. That's a good one. Um, I had actually a student ask the other day, um, something that I wish that I had asked a professor when I was a student at Berkeley. Um, and I do think it's something that a lot of people should ask. And that's, um, just, like, where do you think I'm at right now? And how can I get here? You know, like wherever here is basically. Um, and I think again, that kind of like is, is related to like being curious and being like focused on your own growth and that kind of thing. Um, but he really just wanted me to be super honest with him. Like, what can I do? What am I good at? You know, what are my strengths and weaknesses and how can I, um, just improve my playing and take it to the next level, you know, cause he gave me a very clear idea of like, you know, this is where I want to go. Uh, how do I get there basically? Cecil, were there classes that you took at Berkeley that impacted you in a way that you didn't expect? Like maybe something you thought like, why am I taking this class? And now later you think, Oh, yeah. Okay. You know, were there things like that? I think, um, recital workshop actually, when I took that, um, it was at 9am on a Thursday <laughs> and it was kind of a, a pain to, to wake up for, but, um, yeah, while it was happening, I was thinking like, you know, this is, this is kind of weird. Like, how is this going <laughs> to, how is this going to help me in the future? But now I think it, it definitely, um, 
impacts the way that I would like program a set, for example, or like, um, I think that that that's kind of something that I lost sight of while I was a student was like, I was just trying to, you know, if I was preparing for a recital or performance or something like that, I would just think like, what can I do that's, you know, going to make all my friends in the first row, like, woo, or, you know, <laughs> like come up to me afterwards and say, oh man, that was killing, you know, um, rather than thinking about like, you know, if I was a non-musician and I was sitting in the audience, what would I like to hear? I definitely wouldn't like to hear like a bunch of tunes in 17, eight with like all these weird scales and stuff like that. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that class definitely, um, helped in that sense, just thinking like, I guess, being considerate of your audience and what kinds of things they might like to hear. That's cool. So as a, um, like now in this part of your career, like as a professional player, you have found a way to use social media and use YouTube and use that aspect of things as just an integral part, it feels like, of what you do. Um, can you talk about that for a little bit? Because I think there's a, a way that you could teach some of us who are older who did not grow up with this, like in the same way as a tool, you know what I mean? I think we see it a little bit more on the side, but it feels like you've really started to use it um, as just kind of one avenue of the way that you operate professionally. Mm -hmm. I think really I use social media um, at this point just to kind of like keep track of where I am at different, different parts of my development, like so that I can go back and, you know, watch a video of myself from like six months ago and see what kinds of things I'm, I'm working on and all that. But I think in the grander scheme of things, it's just a means of like staying visible, you know, um, because again, to, to echo what I said earlier, um, you never, never really know who's watching. <laughs> like I, I was using social media for, um, like Instagram in particular for two years, um, and just like posting regularly and, you know, using it to keep in touch with friends that I went to school with and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then a, like one of my favorite musicians, um, alive right now, like, reached out to me and he was like, Hey, what's your number? I'd love to get together and do some playing sometime. And I was like, wow, like this is, you know, he's like writing me from his phone. Like <laughs> it was just so, so weird. And I think that was like enough of a push to start getting, um, serious about it. And for a while I was thinking like, Oh, you know, uh, so-and-so liked my video or, you know, this could lead to this opportunity and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think now I just I just kind of use it to track my progress because I don't like to get in my my head too much about those those kinds of things. But I think it it's good to kind of uh, keep in the in the background is that, like I said, you never know who's watching. And, you know, you might have one of your favorite musicians reach out to you and say, hey, let's let's play sometime or, you know, um, I've had it lead to like recording opportunities with some of my favorite musicians and stuff like that. Um, and it's just, just great to, um, it's kind of like, a, actually Lyle, Lyle Brewer described it as, um, like the great equalizer, <laughs> like everybody's just, just talking to each other. And it's just like a big community that, I don't know, spreads across the whole world, basically. So Lyle Brewer that you just mentioned is another professor here, and you're absolutely right that he he really has used social media in a way um, that that I've noticed as well. And I think what you both have in common is maybe something that younger players aren't thinking about as much in that it's important to be intentional about what you post and how you sound in your posts. And sometimes people are just like, oh, I'm just practicing this lick and I don't really have it. And they put it out there. But then that's maybe how someone would say like, oh, I wonder what this person sounds like. And then they would hear that, you know, so what do you want people to hear? Is that something you think about a little bit or? It, yeah, it, it definitely, um, I'd say like the bulk of the time that I've been using social media, that's something that I try to keep in mind is like just getting the perfect take, you know, because 
you never know who's watching. I keep saying that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, um, also that, that just kind of, uh, feeds into your practice time in a way, you know, if you're just like working on something and trying to like get the perfect take of it, you know, you'll surprise yourself with how like internalized you have, whatever that idea is by the end of the day, you know? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, um, Cheryl and I grew up in a time when we recorded ourselves with cassette tapes, which wasn't that long ago. I just want to say, right. I used or, to do that too. You know, right. And, and so you're recording yourself for yourself, but you're right. Now you could actually also use that so that you could connect with other people. And I'm laughing every time you say, you never know who's watching. Cause it does sound like really intense. And it, I think that you mean it and maybe it is in some ways like, yeah, okay, make sure you're on top of things. But in reality, it's also just because all of this stuff is about connection. You know, when we're talking about people noticing you in class, it's really a positive thing. It's like people see you, you know, if you're feeling insecure about something or you feel like, oh, I just have questions because I don't understand what a faculty member may see at that moment is. I see someone who's asking questions and who's really kind of able to be aware of what feels comfortable or what feels unfamiliar or what feels, you know, this way. Um, and then when you're on social media, sometimes people are just really interested. Oh, I've heard a lot about this person or, or that looks really great. I wonder what that sounds like. And so, um, a lot of music, sometimes these, courses or advice things you take, they say the word networking a lot, but in reality, it's like building relationships, right? And so what you're able, what you were able to do in class was see that, like, it's not just like this required thing that I have to do and check off the box and I'm kind of in a vacuum here and you're making a connection with the professor and with the other students. And then that's what you're using these tools for on social media is like you're putting things out there. And then the idea is that people could connect with you. And, um, I think that's a, it could be a really positive way to think about that idea that people are listening and watching is that people are seeing and hearing you and may want to connect with you. And that could be really cool. So yeah, it doesn't have to just be the scary part of that, right? It could be the positive part of that too. Um, Cheryl, what's on your mind as we're kind of starting to come to the end of our coffee today? Yeah, well, I mean, what you're just talking about there is, I mean, I mean, I'm sure every one of us here could think about a gig and you thought no one was there. And then all of a sudden you get a call months later and somebody goes, I heard you at that little place, <laughs> hole, hole in the wall place. And you don't think back and go, oh, I didn't think anybody was there, but you always do your best. You know, no matter, I guess that's the thing is you're always, it's really about just doing your best wherever you go. Um, and, you know, then, then you're like, yeah, okay. Are you available to go on tour or whatever, you know, whatever gig comes out of that. It's usually just because you were doing your best, you know, whether there was zero people in the room or a thousand people in the room or whatever. But yeah, and, and thanks for sharing your thoughts about, you know, the process of um, preparing for performance, what, whether it's a competition or you're preparing for the gig in the, at the little hole in the wall gig, <laughs> you still want to prepare on that level, right? Whether you're playing that competition or, or in that little place, but I think that's really great um, what you shared about that. And, and it's just interesting, even though we have that span of time from when I was in that competition and you, it was, you know, it kind of, you know, what changes and what remains the same. There's always that, that process stays the same, <laughs> you know, exactly pre-social media or in social media time. So, so that's cool thing. I'm, and I'm glad we got a chance to sh share some of those stories. It's, so not many of us have been in that particular competition, so it's cool. <laughs> I really like what you said, Cheryl, and that echoed something Cecil said about you you don't know who's listening, but you also don't we also don't know at any time like what may have impacted someone. 
So you're right. Like someone will call you and say like, oh, you know, back in this year, in this city, in this thing, you played this tune and I felt this X, Y, Z or whatever. Or, you know, like after that show, I ran into you in the parking lot and you were really nice to me. Or I saw you in an elevator or you were in this class and one day I was having the worst day and you were up at the board and you said, you know, or, you know, for students, too, you don't realize, like, you know, someone's teaching a class and they're having a bad day and then a student raises their hand and asks this question and you remember it forever. Like, I'll never forget the day you asked that question. And they may say that to you and you may have no memory of that moment. But you're right. If you do your best and you're intentional about what you do and you think about it as, as much as you can, um, those things are going to happen and they'll come back around to you. And then that's how things feel out of the blue or they feel like luck. But in reality, you sort of sowed that seed, right? You know? Um, right. Yeah. I think, um, you know, something you mentioned about like the idea of networking should really just be building relationships. You know, like you said, you know, you played a show and then you talk to somebody in the parking lot, you know, you don't be rude to them, <laughs> just yeah. treat them, treat them how you would want to be treated, you know? Um, and then they'll remember that you know, mm -hmm. or interacting with a professor after class or during class or going to their office hours or something like that, you know, don't think of it in terms of like networking, because I feel like that can make it seem like, what am I trying to get from this person almost, you know, um, just building relationships, I guess. Yeah. And one of the very first hangs we did, Coffee Talk hangs, Ian, you said, to Thaddeus Hogarth, who's a professor here, you talked about meeting him in the elevator on the first day that you came to do your placement audition at Berkeley. And, and his face was so surprised. And you remembered everything he said to you and everything, like every little thing about that moment and exactly where you were. And that was a cool moment where he, he took a second to be like present, you know? Yeah, because he was really like, cool he was the first person I met at Berkeley and he was mm -hmm. just like a really like down-to-earth nice guy I've met in an elevator and was just like I don't know it made an Im impact on me that you know he would never remember right mm -hmm. uh so yeah I, I I I like that and also just like the stuff you were talking about really just kind of resonates with you know taking it all seriously right and yeah whether or that's like you know being present and like really doing your best at whatever, but also just like being a good person. Right. I, there was a, um, a clinic with Julian Lodge that he did when I was a student mm -hmm. and, you know, people were asking him specific things, you know, people want to shred, you know, and one of the things that he mentioned was just like the experiences that he had with teachers that just made him want to be a better person. Right. Mm -hmm. And you, don't realize how big of a, a role that has to play in playing music with others, right? And developing within a community. Yeah, because when you think about it, like if you can feel solid with the people that you're working with, whether you're in performance or you're in a school or wherever you are, then you can be creative because you have a solid foundation. And like when you are kind and when you are responsible and when you look out for other people and people know that that's who you are, then they can take chances musically. Then they can be who they want to be. Then they can let you go in a classroom and say like, yeah, go ahead, be creative because they know you're not going to step on someone, you know, and um, and you're going to give yourself the room to say like, oh, yeah, I, I could work on this or I could get better on this or I'm not sure I know the answer to that question. And I feel like if you if that's your reputation, then you're allowing a lot more creativity to happen, you know, provided you have the requisite musical skills for the situation, obviously. Right. Um, so that's I think that's really good for people to know. And hopefully it's comforting in a way that when you are working on that in yourself, it, it, people can see that that becomes clear, you know, whether or not you feel like you're an introverted or extroverted person, I feel like that comes across. Um, see, so what are you working on artistically right now? Like what's your, what's your thing? What are you working on musically and project wise? Well, I have, um, a band with my wife, uh, called Decent. 
Um, and we put out um, an EP uh, like right after we finished Berkeley. We went to Berkeley together um, and finished at the same time. We released an EP then, and we're working on an EP um, that should be like we're releasing singles from it in the next uh, couple months. Um, and I think the first first one of those is coming out like the week after next or so. And it's kind of like folk folk indie rock, I guess is, is kind of how we describe it. Um, but yeah, really excited about that. And I'm uh, in preparation for recording for my debut album um, as a leader, um, like an organ trio um, plus a couple horns kind of vibe um, and just playing like, like swing and standards and backbeat stuff. Cool. Yeah. Could you say the name of the band you have with your wife uh, one more time so people can hear it and look for it? Sure. It's a uh, Vison V I S E N. Cool. Thanks. Cecil, thanks for hanging with us today. Thanks, thanks for, for having me. Taylor. You're welcome. Um, so I think that is it. I think we've come to our, the end of our coffee for today. So thank you, Cecil, again, for being here. Thanks, Ian. And thanks, Cheryl Bailey. And, um, We'll be with you on the next Coffee Talk. Everybody, have a good day. Mm -hmm.